Hello and welcome. This is Puneet Surana and you are listening to the Galata podcast. Galata is a word from the Indian language Kannada that means the noise caused by a ruckus. This podcast is about starting up while we are still in college, testing ideas, creating a team, building something worthwhile and adding value to other people's lives. Join us as we discuss the thrill of earning your first buck, tackling uncertainties, overcoming obstacles and delighting others. Most of all, the Galata podcast is about seeing, understanding and implementing so you can deliver on your audacious promise. With us today, we have somebody who is so superbly insightful that i can't wait to get into the interview but he is a graduate from bits pilani and the faculty of management studies delhi university he is also the founder trustee of an educational non-profit called farigi is that the right way to say it how did you discover that <laughs> well google is everywhere <laughs> He has built the Indian division of studentbusinesses.com, a startup based out of Harvard University. More than anything else, he's passionate about marketing and selling. Always excited and eager to teach it to as many students as possible because he is also the co-founder of craftshala.com. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in welcoming Varun Satya. Thank you very much, mate. Glad to be here. Pleasures. Mine. What were the conversations like around the dinner table when you were growing up? So my parents essentially have between them about uh, five degrees, five master's degrees. And my sister has a couple of master's degrees on her own and is on her way to collect her third. So I come from a family of people who are sort of really invested in education and you take the middle, typical middle class India and then you sort of make them extremists into education. That's what, uh, that's what they are. And both my parents, uh, work in education. My father's doctor is now become a professor. My mother worked in education all her life. And so in that sense, I guess uh, school and stuff around school school was was something which was quite big on the you know on the on the menu uh, back when I was uh, in school uh, I didn't exactly enjoy that I didn't enjoy school all that much and I didn't particularly sort of think too highly of of that entire segment to be honest for most of my childhood so when someone to ask I still remember someone to ask me you know as a child what do you want to grow up what do you want to grow up to do and I would say I'm not sure what I will do but there are two things I'll not do and those two things happen to be the professions of my father was a doctor my mother was a teacher so uh, I said those two things are off the table and so it's a little bit you know ironic that I sort of finally found my calling in education uh, even though I sort of you know had major issues with it uh, my mother as I said worked in education entire life and used to have quite passionate discussions where I would sort of critique the way things were being run my final year project at BITS actually uh, was around education the project that I did in fourth year was improving educational outcomes. It was always coming from the point of view of a critique. I never actually thought that I would go out and work in education. It was always from the point of view of these are the things that are wrong and this is how this should happen. And it was more of an angst, you know, like a teenager's angst rather than necessarily any sort of passion for the subject. And I think that's something which... which I would say would be the biggest, you know, the biggest talking discussion around in my home when I was young. A lot of debates. A lot of debates, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of angry debates i don't know why <laughs> i mean it was it was a lot of anger from my end i think i don't I mean, so not so much from the other end were you the yeah. second child i was you yeah <laughs> do you have a theory for that <laughs> yeah well my sister has a theory about that the second child is usually the rebel in the house yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's when you know the 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 basics are taken care of that you can afford to rebel no i mean so so when my father was growing up he was his father passed my grandfather passed away when he was in class 11th 11th at that oh. point was the final year of school and so essentially my, my family was a refugee family from the time of partition uh, as as a lot of family was in delhi and so and so when he was growing up he almost didn't go to med school because there was a lot of pressure on my grandmother at that point ke oh my father should start a shop or go work some place etc rather than study another five and a half years in in college you know and so he saw a time where a consistent income might be hard to find and so he graduated from mulana azad and he went for an interview with esic which is a government run organization uh and he got selected for esic and he started working there and then he retired from there one job now he's on his second job as a professor so he saw a time where you know the entire his entire life was with one one job and that was not guaranteed when he was growing up my time was different when i when I, when i was growing up i saw the same job the same schedules and all and it's easy to rebel once the basics are sort of taken care of so uh i i guess that has something to do with it for sure when you know when when you grow up in peaceful times the 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 yearning becomes for for something more adventurous or exciting which those who grew up in genuinely exciting or adventurous times don't because they uh-huh. you know because they see, have seen the challenge on the other end they've seen the uncertainty uh and so on and so forth talk about the mess that cat happened and how did you bounce back i heard the story from you just the previous day so i've and i got to know your work before i got to know the story so i've discovered you from the back uh-huh. how did you bounce back from something like that and how do you feel about the decision right now i'm a nervous starter and so every time i'm starting something i'm usually quite terrible at it even if you know, i'm naturally inclined towards it i'm still terrible at it and gradually i get the get the sense of it i work well under deadlines in that fashion and that really sort of gets me as as things get closer so i i'm a human being i think that's the best way to do it because i think most people can associate with that but the thing is that that could work against you when you're attempting something really critical like a cad exam and so i'd given entrance exams for engineering pits was the last exam i wrote by that time i had already sort of figured this thing out that the 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 more exams i give the better i keep getting in and I, that trend was very clear and so very sure that uh, i didn't want cat to be the first exam i wrote and cat was in my year in the second sun, on the second sunday of november and on the first sunday i figured that there was an exam in irma uh, exam for irma that was there and uh, and i thought that you know let's get into the hab- habit of exam giving just you know that wake up on the morning mm-hmm. you know go to a test center it's a little chilly by that time in delhi and so just get into that habit of so i gave the irma exam primarily because of that and i did exactly what i thought i'd do which is i messed it up i didn't i didn't get a short list <laughs> but i got what i needed to get out of that ah, which was yes. to get into the habit of of or, or some kind of a habit and so when i wrote cat uh, i was more comfortable i gave the exam as best as i could there was one one thing that i happened which i didn't mention in the session yesterday which was that mm-hmm. uh, in the middle of the so so the di section the data and reproduction section we are used to have three section back yes. then in, in cad we so, still do 
I think now they've combined. No, 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 they've not combined. Okay, so 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 the DI section was the middle section. As soon as I gave my answer sheet, I turned over and I realized that the middle part of the middle, the exact middle of the paper, I never seen those two questions. So I never saw two questions. Now. The difference, obviously, if someone doesn't have an MBA degree, the difference that makes is that the CAD paper is structured in a way that you have to choose the easiest questions and then attempt that. The fact that you didn't see two questions can or cannot make a difference depending on whether those two questions were easy or tough. <laughs> I saw those two questions, my heart sang. I never read those two questions. I have no idea whether they would have made any impact on my paper or not because, you know, as I said, I, I, I'm not the kind to sort of spend too much time thinking about whatever it is, right? But I was happy that I'd done enough. And so the result came in, that was in early January. I think 9th of January was when the result came. It was a Friday and uh, came in at, at midnight. Uh, it took me about 30 minutes to uh, get the website working and see my score. Uh, and once the score came in, it was uh, it was good. It was about 99.66 percentile. Based on my understanding of cutoffs of different campuses, I thought that I'd get at least two or three I am uh, shortlist. And then hope for the best when it comes to the top two or three campuses uh, where 99.66 would not be a short shot. Depends on the profile. And the sectional cutoffs, etc., were fine, all above 90 and so on and so forth. I saw that, then I went to one of the forums and I saw that people had also received uh, shortlists for the next round along with the score. And I had not seen that in my uh, in my score. And so I went back to the site. I spent another half an hour trying to figure where is, where the, is? the shortlist. Uh, and then I eventually realized that there are none. And so oh. at 99.66, I had a I had a good score with 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 nothing to really sort of show for it. And incident you know that was also been the trend of the two or three other exams that I'd given before that as well Irma being one example so my actually I was not really far off from the shortlist uh, even in those exams so I was sort of dreading that I that I'm hope I don't sort of miss this one by a small amount and I thought I'd cleared it by a substantial amount at least from my goals point of view and then there was no shortlist and so that was just sort of a disconcerting mo- sort of an experience my parents I think as I said I mean you know the education has always been like a big mm-hmm. importance to them and so it came as a real sort of a real sort of a blow from 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 that point of view uh, but it was hard to process exactly how this could have happened. And because by that time I'd written all the exams except one, it was done. And so it just felt as if, you know, this is something which is not uh, going to work out. And the thing that sort of really grated me, and I thought about this I was as I was driving uh, to the uh, uh, FMS exam, which was about 36 hours from the time that I re- learned my CAT result. So CAT result came in on a Friday night. The exam uh, for FMS was on Sunday afternoon. And so I was, when I was driving to the exam, I just sort of reflect on how much I'd already accomplished from a business point of view when I was in college. So all the startup thing that I'd mentioned, uh, the, the setting up the, the cell and all those activities I'd already accomplished by the time that I'd written the CAT exam. And so in that sense, I was well sort of forward from a development point of view, from an intent point of view. And I had gotten a score that should have been sort of more than sufficient. Uh, and so the thought that really sort of grated me was how how poorly the system was designed uh, for people to select high potential students from a business school. That was the thought. And once you sort of confront a system that is not sort of favoring you, you only have two choices. Either 
you accept it and you and you sort of go with whatever it is that you're getting or you sort of go ahead and make the system sort of work for you, for you. yeah mm-hmm. I, I mean i'm obviously removing the option which is to break down the entire break system down. which is usually not helpful and right. so when i wrote the fms exam i wrote it in a lot of anger because the only thought that i was running through my head was the fact that no no professor anywhere is going to tell me that i don't deserve that spot in it and so i knew that fms used to select about 100 students in 2009 when i wrote the exam only would accept about 100 students nationally so so in that sense considering that i'm you would pick in 10 times that amount across the across the seven or eight institutions or actually more than uh, 20 times that amount you really didn't plan to clear yeah, fms yeah. because it was just too hard to really plan for it and so when i wrote it i knew that i would have to get that get a high score and the only way i was going to get a high score was to back my instinct completely at that point and so there were two hours and there were 200 questions and i'm pretty sure i answered uh, pretty much everything on that paper and eventually sort of uh, got into i so i had a percentile of 99.97 in the fms uh, entrance test it was i think it was something that meant a lot because although i don't think that test taking skills are the only are are a very important criteria in sort of achieving anything i do think that once you're confronted with something that that is a push that is a setback how you respond to that and what you what you use that for is, is fairly critical and so that that exam is an exam that every year lots of people cry actually there's no fms now entrance exam yes. uh, they now clear to cat but that experience i guess a lot of people go through it but it has has a f- sort of an important point in my own in my own journey it sort of gives a lot of confidence i guess for for me to have sort of attempted a lot of other things that experience i think has has so been a, yeah i mean it adds it adds a fair bit of confidence to you so i'm fairly reflective as an individual and so i don't think that confidence comes to me naturally it has to it sort of derives itself from data from from principles ideas so to speak and so you need these kind of things i guess in order to give you the requisite level of surety of attempting bigger things at least i needed it at that point uh in in my development you mentioned a very critical aspect and the perspective of the placement trap which you usually refer to when a lot of students have a tendency of focusing just on the short term money or the package that they get but you have a long term view on it which i believe will be extremely valuable for people who are either sitting for placements or just freshers so long term compensation comes from uh from a combination of the the stream that you're in the skill that you have and the network that you build in it the stream is essentially the the functional specialization of it and and the demand that the market has for that that specialization so for instance coding today is a lot more valuable than than let's say dusting the streets um and that's you know that's a very extreme example of understanding that just because you like dusting the streets doesn't necessarily mean you're going to mm-hmm. make a lot of money from it there is a market demand for for it so so one part of it is choosing something which is you know the the stream part of it but then in in addition to that you need to develop the requisite level of skill and the requisite level of networks from a skill and networks point of view the skills and networks are not going to be developed necessarily in college or school they are going to be developed when you start working and so really the role of your early jobs is not necessarily to give you money but it is to give you enough skill and enough networks 
in order for you to really maximize your earnings over a period of time. What people miss when they're looking at the career is the fact that for all of us, we make most of our monies well into the later halves of our careers. Really, I mean, most of us are going to make most of the money we're going to make in yes. the in the second part of our of our journey, right? So, and that happens once you have that requisite level of capability that the market demands. And capability, as I said, is a function of skill and network. So, really, what you should be choosing your job offers around is around maximizing which jobs are going to give you the right skill and the right network such that you can sort of derive good value out of it in the long term in the long term there are a lot of jobs that come on college which pay a certain amount of money uh, that money could be higher than other jobs which are frankly not compared on the money aspect let's say but are far more valuable from a from a knowledge uh, and a network point of view so every person who goes to work for a startup or a, a promising startup probably is 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 taking a more considered decision if you're doing it by choice i mean a lot of times you know uh, you go to work wherever you get a job but if you've done a little bit of research on it and you've gone to work for a startup or, a, or even better a person who, who can give you that right kind of guidance then that is probably the best way that that you can sort of you know that you can sort of look at uh, look at this fortunately it's a hard thing to manage because most placements in India are run by campuses and campus placements will always have the tendency of reducing the companies to the simplest, lowest common denominator, which is money. So if you're sitting in a business school, the companies come in the order of, of really yes. on the order of the package, of the package because it is said that it is in the order of preference but frankly preference in absence of anything else comes down to the package and and that's where a lot of emerging companies don't even hire from campus because they see no value in being perceived as uh, as an offer which is lower uh, uh, than what their what other companies are paying because fundamentally they're giving better jobs because i want people to be able to sort of really take a hard cold look at at this at its heart i think it's this philosophy that just because something cannot be measured doesn't mean that it is worthless it is something which is really pervasive in our thinking that just because you can measure something that that makes that measure being more valuable there are a lot of things which which cannot be measured in and most of our errors actually tend to happen around around the things that cannot be measured in i totally resonate with you because in fact, he's one of the greatest investors in the world, Ray Dalio. He has a perspective which is so similar to what you just said, wherein he has the three level of consequences, wherein the first consequence is the immediate one, which students observe, which has to be con- compensation, the immediate cash that you get, or the bonus, joining bonus that you get. But the second level of consequence is where you're really tapping into what is the skills that I'm going to get, what is the network I'm going to have, what is the personal development I'm going to have. And then, of course, he goes even more deeper the third, third level consequence when he looks at it long term from a different perspective as well. I think, in a way, this equips somebody to take a much more informed decision. Let's move to something that you've been pioneering, storytelling. What do you think is missing when it comes to storytelling when the youth has something to share? Or where, where is the youth not capitalizing on the power of storytelling? Because I know you're a big believer in storytelling and its ability to grasp people and make change happen. I think the point that a lot of people miss is the fact that uh, stories are not fun things. They, they, there is a strong evolutionary reason for why stories exist in the first place, right? So it is hypothesized that uh, we are one of the reasons that we came out to dominate the animal kingdom and sort of come out of our darkness as 
as as uh, as conscious beings is is our ability to to our ability to tell stories because it makes us the only species in the world which can collaborate with each other uh, in a complex environment at scale with the only species uh, who can who can collaborate with uh, cooperate and collaborate with a large number of other beings of our species in a complex fashion so there are some species which um uh, which can collaborate in large numbers uh, ants for example but the interaction is very basic there are some species where the other members can collaborate in a complex fashion like chimpanzees but they can't collaborate in 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 large numbers or even lions for that matter so stories have a very strong evolutionary reason to exist one of the uh, theories talks about the fact that it primarily exists for us to change uh, change our mind because uh, uh, there are multiple psychological biases that act upon us and one of those psychological biases confirmation bias which is our uh, tendency to think about uh, a new event and consider that event as agreeing with our existing beliefs or purposes confirmation bias is the reason why uh, it's so hard to change political beliefs because two people look at the same event, but they are seeing it from their worldview. And so therefore they process that event completely differently and makes it very hard for you to have a conversation uh, where you're trying to change someone else's mind. Uh, and so therefore, if confirmation bias is one reason why, you know, it's hard to change the minds, the, from an evolutionary point of view, the species will survive if it can learn. And so when it comes to learning, when it comes to changing our mind, stories play a very important role. Um, you know, there are cave markings that tend to indicate that stories could have predated language itself. Uh, I'm not so sure about that, but certainly, you know, the written language came in much later than, than our ability to tell stories in, right? So that, uh, 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 that is the con, that is the power of stories. They're, they are amongst the strongest reasons of why we, ex why we've come to do what we do on this planet. Uh, and in that context, uh, I find that a lot of people, um, uh, in our culture today, don't look at stories as um, as something that they do. They look at stories as oh, stories in films and stories in books and and so on and so forth, which are just which is just one kind of storytelling uh, that exists, uh, and it's a it's a fairly refined kind of storytelling. But really, we are all telling stories all the time. We're telling stories to ourselves. We are telling stories to. Uh, people around us we narrate the incidents of a day we talk about belief systems we talk about uh, you know everything that matters to us right and and perhaps most of all we talk to ourselves and uh, we tell a story to ourselves about the way we are and the way you know the way the world works we tell stories of our own capabilities of our own things that oh these are the things that i'm good at and these are things that i'm not good at uh, sometimes these stories have no rational basis whatsoever and so the real power of storytelling is being being ability is the, the ability it offers for people to change their mind and you can use it to change someone else's mind and you can use it to change your own mind about yourself in the context of changing other people's mind if you are sort of operating with someone who has who you don't have a let's say a great equation with who you're meeting for for the first time whether that is a formal meeting let's say a startup talking to an investor a student talking 
talking to an interviewer uh, or so on and so forth or whether uh, you know it's in the informal context where you're talking to a new person uh, that you've met in a party once the only way that they're going to be interested in you is if you have the ability to engage them uh, and that engagement typically happens through through stories and so really it's about being able to develop the ability to identify the stories of your life and then be able to narrate them in in your own natural authentic way and that if you can do allows you to build connections with with people all over and allows you to to sort of present your point of view in a much better way <laughs>